You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles to God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now we are in 1 Peter chapter 4, drunkenness, parties and orgies. Oh my, it's going to be a good time. So as we open God's word, why don't you literally open God's word, grab your Bible or scroll there on your phone and I will pray as we launch in. God, we thank you so much for the gift of your word, and we pray you would speak to us through it. Would you teach us? Would you change us? Would you embolden us? Would you give us conviction and courage and joy? And give us a joy, a hope, a peace in believing. And we pray that the way we respond would bring you glory forever and ever. And all of God's people said, Amen. It's 1914. And Ernest Shackleton is gearing up for what would be the first coast-to-coast trek across Antarctica. To do things like that, you need a lot of preparation, you need a lot of equipment, and you need some people to go with. So he goes on a recruitment drive and puts an ad in the local paper. This is what it said. Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness. Safe return, doubtful, honour and recognition in event of success. At least he's honest. Now, in the spirit of honesty, I need to tell you that at 6.30 this morning, I discovered this probably didn't happen. This is like an urban myth. The ad didn't appear in the paper. But the point stands, so we're going to go with it, okay? Just roll with me. This may not be the most attractive-looking invitation, but it is an accurate description of the journey ahead. This really does represent what the people on this journey were about to go through. And, and it strikes me that 1 Peter works a little bit the same way. 
from time to time. It might not look at face value like the world's most attractive invitation, but it does describe the path ahead of us as we seek to follow Jesus. I'm talking, of course, of the theme of suffering that comes up again and again and again in 1 Peter. We've seen it a bunch of times already. Chapter 2, verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Chapter 2, verse 20. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. In chapter 3, verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Suffering again and again comes up through this letter to give us an accurate description of what's ahead of us as we seek to follow Jesus, the suffering servant. But as we dive into this passage today, chapter 4, we're going to see it's kind of more of the same. There's more about suffering, except this time Peter goes further up and further in. He takes us deeper into what this suffering will look like and what resources are available to us as we try and face it as the people of God. So we're going to tackle this passage in three sections with three different headings. And the first one is this, alert but not alarmed. We kick off verse 1 with a clear indication of where Peter wants to take us. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Believers will suffer. Christ suffered, and if it's good enough for him, it's going to be good enough for us. We should expect it too. And we've seen this before. Again and again, Christ suffered, therefore will suffer. But, but Peter takes it a little bit further as verse 1 continues. For whoever has suffered in the flesh, he says, has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Some curly fries in there. I don't know if you noticed. Ceased from sin? What does that mean? It, it seems like it could be saying, if you suffer, you're not going to sin ever again. Right, Like there's some sort of tunnel of suffering that a believer goes through when they come out the other side. They are finished with sin once and for all. Thanks for coming. And that would be really nice. But I'm not sure it's the case. I'm not sure that's true. I think our sinful nature stays with us even after conversion, at least this side of the new creation. And yes, we see progress, but perfection will come at the day of Jesus' return. Once more, I think this passage is talking about something else. I think he's saying something completely different. Verse 1, he says, Since Christ suffered in the flesh, we should arm ourselves with the same way of thinking, which is to say we should take our cues from Jesus. We should make Jesus our model. I think that's what Peter's trying to get us towards here. Jesus himself said similar things in Mark chapter 8. He said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. Now, imagine for a moment someone read that for the first time and they took it a little bit too literally. So they went home, they found some wood, they hauled themselves up in the garage and they built a great big cross. Then they carried it with them to work each day. On the tram was very strange, very awkward. They carried it. They had to get a bigger car, all these kind of things. They carried this cross. Now, if someone did that, we would look at them weird, right? And say, oh, I'm not sure you've quite got the point of that verse. But it would also be abundantly clear whose team they're on, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it just be really obvious to them, to us, to everyone, this is a Jesus person? Sadly mistaken about some things, but a Jesus person nonetheless. 
Now, I think what Jesus is saying is not build a cross and carry it, but, but be willing to suffer like he did on the cross. That's how people will know you're a Jesus person. As you carry your cross, as you're willing to suffer for what you believe like our Savior did, it'll be really obvious that your allegiance is to him and not to the world. If you suffer like Jesus did, you make it clear whose team you're on and you make it clear that you're not on the side of those who continue in sin. You're different now. And I think that's what Peter's saying when he says cease from sin. If, if you suffer, it's clear that you're not on team sin anymore. You're on team Jesus. And he unpacks a few examples of what this will look like in verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. What he's saying is you don't get drunk. You don't go sleep around. You don't treat sex like it's for anyone, anywhere, anytime. And you don't worship idols because that's not who you are anymore. That's not your team. He mentions the Gentiles here in verse 3, not because they're a particularly naughty bunch, but because the people he's writing to used to be Gentiles. And so it should be really clear that's who they were, but it's not who they are anymore. Maybe that used to be you, but that time is past. You're finished with that stuff now. You've broken with it. It has no hold on you anymore. You've ceased from sin and you're living in the will of God now. Yes, you might see your sinful nature rear its ugly head from time to time, but you are so aligned to Jesus that you are willing to do whatever it takes to follow him, even if that means suffering. It's pretty clear throughout this letter that suffering will mark the life of a believer. We're exiles here. But here's the question that Peter speaks to next, which I think a lot of us have as we've tracked through this letter. What does that suffering mean for me? Which road does this rubber hit? Because when we talk about suffering for being a Christian, I don't know about you, but my head often goes to other places in the world, right? To parts of the world where you are in danger of losing your life, of being beaten, or imprisoned or arrested just for showing up to church. It can be easy to go there in our minds. And that, that's a reality for so many of our brothers and sisters all over the world. It's a terrifying, devastating reality. But I don't think that's what this passage is about. There's a danger in, in that being a picture of suffering as a Christian because we think that's what it means. And we think then that passages like this only apply to those Christians out there. And it's pretty safe, pretty comfortable people here in Melbourne. We're right to point out that our suffering is not like their suffering. We're not physically endangered. We're not politically endangered for our faith here in Melbourne. Yes, you've probably noticed that some parts of our political climate are starting to make us nervous but you were not scared to come to church today. And so it is good and right to point out that our suffering is not their suffering. But I also think that suffering is not what Peter's talking about. 
As far as we know, there's not a lot of evidence that the church Peter was writing to faced any kind of state-sanctioned persecution. People were just not thrown in prison in this church for what they believed. It was just perfectly fine to be a Christian. So I don't think Peter is talking about this kind of persecution. Look, look at verse 3 again. For the time that's passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. The Christians don't get drunk at the parties. They don't treat sex like it's for anyone, anywhere, anytime. And they don't worship idols. And that's their battlefield. Because as they do that, people look at them and think they're weird. That's the front line for their suffering. And in many ways, it's the front line for us too, isn't it? When you don't join in these things that seem so normal to so many around us, They'll be surprised and they will malign you, Peter says. That word malign is the Greek word blasphemeo, from which we get blasphemy, which is to say, when you don't join in, they will slander you. They'll talk about you badly and your reputation will take a hit. Friends, I'm not sure Peter's speaking of a physical persecution. He's not speaking of a political persecution here. Peter has in mind a social persecution. And suddenly it's not out there so much anymore. Because like them, our problem may not be the raised fist, but it will be the raised eyebrow. Occasionally, I get the chance to play in wedding bands. I've joyfully sold my soul, musically speaking, to play Dancing Queen on the odd Saturday night. And uh, I do some work with an agency where the setup is you get an email that tells you where to be and when, and that's it. You don't know what songs you're playing. You don't know the couple. You don't even know the other musicians. And the thing about playing at a wedding reception is there's heaps of downtime. Right? They say speeches are only going to be 10 minutes, but you know for a fact they'll be at least 20, and it's always the dad's fault. What it means is there's these people you're playing with you've never met, and suddenly you find yourself with hours on end just hanging out backstage waiting to go on. So the conversation starts, and eventually it turns to what everyone does during the week. I'm going to be honest, I really don't look forward to that moment. Because most of the people in the band will say, I'm a musician, which is code for... I teach music at a school somewhere. <laughs> some of them work in music stores. Some of them fix instruments for a living, these kinds of things. But then it gets to me and I say, well, actually, I work at a church. I'm a pastor. And that usually goes one of two ways. Sometimes it's not so bad. It just People move on very quickly, but they're mostly polite about it. And sometimes there's like a really dead, awkward silence. They look at me as if I've just told them one of my hobbies is bow hunting kittens in my local neighborhood or something, right? <laughs> they're, they're mostly weirded out but a little bit horrified at what I've just said. It's amazing how awkward things can get and how quickly they can go there just by me saying, I'm a Christian. 
I work at a church, but, but I know for a fact that that discomfort is nothing compared to what most of us face on a weekly basis. Because tomorrow I'm going to go to work and I don't need to wrestle with an inclusion policy that sits in tension with some of the things I believe. I'm not going to get invited to a party with all of my other colleagues where I know they're all going to get drunk, but the only way for me to fit in is to go along with it. My nearest water cooler won't be surrounded by people who are taking a strange delight in the downfall of yet another prominent Christian leader. I'm not going home to a family who is frustrated that I spent my Sunday morning at church. But I know that makes me the minority. For most of us, this or something like it is the reality. And when Peter calls us exiles, this is the kind of thing he means. We're not from here. As Christians, we belong to another kingdom, which means this is not our home, at least not yet. And so it makes sense if we don't feel welcome. It hurts. It's awful and it's painful, but it should not be surprising. We should be alert that this will happen, but we shouldn't be alarmed by it. Because the same thing happened to the saviour we follow. Knowing that this is our real and present danger, what do we do? How do we face up to suffering like that? How do we deal with this social persecution? Well, Peter has a couple of extraordinary suggestions for us. Which brings us to point two, the war of ideas. Good news is Peter doesn't just flag that suffering is coming and leave us with it. That's going to suck. Good luck. He gives us a whole lot more to go on with. He gives us some armor and some ammunition to take with us. Look again at verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves is a military term there, right? He has very much in mind this vision of somebody putting on armor, preparing for war. But notice what we're to gear up with. It's a way of thinking. Because, of course, the way you think about suffering will shape the way that you endure it. And, and we're to think about suffering the same way Jesus did. What is that? Well, we saw it in chapter 2, didn't we? In chapter 2, verse 22, Jesus committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. There was no mindset of retribution, no intention to fight fire with fire. It was just for Jesus, a quiet and settled knowledge that God is the judge and he is on the throne. That it's his opinion which matters most. And that's exactly where Peter takes us in this passage. Right in the middle, straight after the reminder of the suffering we're likely to face, he puts this peg in the ground, a life-altering, mind-bending, world-shaping reality that turns our suffering on its head. 
God is the judge. He is on the throne. And his opinion matters most. See it there in verse 4. With respect to this, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. God is the judge. He will make the call. And there's great comfort in that if you are someone who feels judged for your faith. Because if you feel judged, you can know that those who judge you will themselves be judged. For some of us, that might seem harsh, but, but for some of us, the pain is so real that we just long for justice. And we can know it's coming. Our suffering does not go unseen. And this suffering does not go unpunished. But there's also more in the armory. The judgment of God on those people out there is not the only thing to shape our way of thinking. Because in verse 6, Peter gives us more. Now, to be fair, this is an odd little nugget that you kind of have to untangle. But if you get it, it can fill your tank with hope. Check it out. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Seems weird at first, right? Did Jesus die and then go and preach to those who are already dead? Like he did the Sermon on the Mount and then did a sermon under the Mount to the underworld and all the people in Hades or whatever. I, I don't think that's it. If you can get through the clunky English, it, it's actually heaps more beautiful and, and way more simple than that. Here's what I think he's saying. The gospel was preached to many people who were all alive when they heard it. Now, some of them are dead. So it would be easy to think that if somebody has died, they haven't exactly avoided judgment, right? In the words of verse 6, it looks like they've been judged by the flesh in the end anyway. And, and the question this verse is trying to answer is, if believing in Jesus doesn't save you from death, then what's the point? And Peter says, well, actually, it does. They might look like they've been judged, but they're just dead in the flesh. They are alive in the spirit, which means death is not the end at all. Not for the Christian. The Christian might still face death, but because Jesus is raised, death has no victory. Death has no sting. We have nothing to fear in death because Christ has been through it before us. And he rose victorious out the other side and then brings us with him. I'm going to say, if you know you're going to be raised from the dead one day, that totally reframes your view of life, doesn't it? If you know you've got the resurrection coming, that totally reframes your view of suffering. I mean, take Peter, for example. Here's a guy, when Jesus was arrested, who knew social persecution very, very well. Three times he was asked, hey, don't you know that guy? Aren't you with him? Aren't you one of his buddies? And three times, he flatly denied it, terrified of the social and physical implications. Then he saw the risen Jesus, and that changed everything. Upon knowing this resurrection hope, Peter became 
a man preaching to crowds and synagogues and temples everywhere. He stood up to kings and governments. He, he was arrested. He was even crucified for what he believed. And he was okay with that. Because he knew, he knew the risen Jesus. And if you know that you're going to be raised from the dead one day, that totally reframes your view of life. A few weeks ago, I found myself walking through a cemetery. I was in the neighborhood, thought I'd drop by. And it was uh, part of this spiritual retreat I was on. I had lots of time to think and read and pray. And so I went for a walk and found myself wandering through a cemetery and looking at the, the gravestones. And I found myself incredibly angry, sad. Because I was struck as I stopped to read these gravestones. Just how many of them made comment about a person's popularity? Here lies John Smith, highly regarded, much loved, deeply respected, sorely missed. And that was it. Don't, don't get me wrong. Nothing wrong with having deep, loving relationships. But when you get to the end of life, do you really want that to be the only thing you have to show for it? Is that enough of a hope to put on your gravestone? Not for me. I, I'd much rather mine say something like, here lies Dave Chiswell. He is not here. He is risen. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. There's so much more hope in that, isn't there? And so I was just devastated looking at these lives who had nothing to show for it except a small amount of respect from the people around them. I hope you do have good relationships. I hope you are respected. I don't mean to speak ill of that, but I just don't think it's enough to live for. It'd be really easy to read a passage like this and take moral instruction away from it in all the wrong ways, to read these verses and say, all right, well, don't get drunk, don't do any orgies, I'll put that on the to-do list, and then I've nailed it. But if you think that's what the passage is about, you have missed the whole point. The point is, this is not our home. And so if we look out of place here, that's okay. If we are not welcome here, that's okay. If we suffer in this life, that's okay. Because this life is not all we have. We're people of the resurrection. We're exiles here. Travelers just passing through. So don't be surprised by suffering. Arm yourself with the knowledge that God is the judge, that his opinion matters more than any other earthly opinion, and know that Jesus is risen. And one day you will be too. 
That's a way of thinking that'll turn your suffering on its head. But Peter gives us more than that. He points out that this way of thinking is not our only resource. It's powerful. It is our armor for the battle, but we have something else too. And in this one, he takes us in an unexpected direction. I wasn't confident he was going to go here, but he does. He reminds us this is not our home and this road will be hard. So find some traveling companions for the way. Which takes us to our third heading, our home away from home. If I had to summarize Peter here, I'd say his point is something like this. The world will not understand where you've come from and they won't welcome you. So do church properly. You won't be welcome here So make sure your Christian community is different to the world around. Now, I know it sounds suspicious. I'm the gospel community person at this church, right? It's very convenient that I get to encourage you to join a gospel community at this point. But I really do think this passage is about that, or at least something like it. Check it out. After a whole section on how the world will treat us, Instead of talking about how we should treat the world, Peter goes on to talk about how we should treat each other. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, we are a people who love each other who show hospitality to one another, who welcome each other, who who use whatever we have to serve whoever we can. We're a radically different kind of community. Friends, as we arm ourselves for suffering as Christians in the world, we need to know we have to be different as a community. There is no place here for friendly fire. You will feel like an outcast for pursuing godliness at your college dorm. You'll find yourself on the the margins of your workplace for imitating Christ. Some of us will even be exiles in our own family because we live for Jesus. But you should never feel like that at church. You should never feel like that in your gospel community. Instead, we're to be a place of love above all, a place of hospitality, of of welcome, a place that serves however we can with whatever we've got to serve with. We lay our lives down for each other. I was in a gospel community once that, that was really having a crack at this. My wife and I were leading together and we were having a great time. And, and then this couple joined and they were a fantastic addition to the group. Um, but one of our habits was we'd open a bottle of wine at the beginning of the evening and then study the Bible and have a good time. And, and one of these people who were new to the group let us know that they found that difficult. They'd become a Christian later in life. And before they had, they had struggled with their relationship to alcohol. 
And so in becoming a Christian, they had really worked hard to leave that behind. And so they didn't think it was wrong for Christians to drink alcohol, but they did notice themselves feeling tempted and finding it confronting and difficult when our group would drink together. They told Lexi and I that, and, and so we chatted and decided maybe the best thing is let's just stop drinking together as a group. And it was a simple decision. Until a couple of weeks later, when someone else in the group said, actually, I'm a vegan. And I've been wrestling with our relationship to meet as a group. Uh, this guy was a brand new Christian, but loved the environment deeply and was taking seriously our call as Christians to look after the world that God has made. And, and so he didn't think it was wrong for everyone to eat meat, but he did notice himself feeling conflicted and confronted by the way we'd eat meat together every single week. So we chatted as a group and we decided, let's all learn a new recipe. Let's all find a way to love this guy well. Now I see some smiles and some stickers of laughter. But I noticed when this guy who was struggling with our relationship to meet let me know, my first reaction was laughter too. Really? We're going to go there now? Okay. And as soon as I did, I realized I've alienated him. I haven't loved him well in that moment at all. Now, I'm not saying as a Christian community we have to accommodate every preference, but we must accommodate every pursuit of godliness. And I chatted to this guy, I became confident that's what it was for him. It was his conscience really trying his best to follow Jesus. Why was I so slow to celebrate that? Why wasn't I more joyful about learning a new recipe myself? Why didn't I do verse 9 to show hospitality to one another without grumbling? I, I don't think we have to accommodate every preference, but we do have to welcome and celebrate every pursuit of godliness. And I know that's going to be messy. There's a lot of us here, right? That's going to be tricky and we're going to frustrate one another and clash over all sorts of things as we have a crack. But, but that's what Peter has in mind, I think, in verse 8 when he says that love covers over a multitude of sins. That we won't always get this right. But if love is the theme of our life together, then we will work our way through it. And we'll become an incredible kind of counter community, a little home away from home as we wait for the end of all things together, a refuge from the storm of your workplace a place to come back to at the end of a long, hard day of classes where Jesus is not welcome. A family that loves you when your earthly family is disappointed that you were here. Friends, in a world where we won't feel welcome sometimes, let's be welcoming, at least to one another. Let's pursue godliness and then celebrate each other's pursuit of godliness. 
Let's be a better kind of community who can remind each other that, yes, this is hard. This is suffering, and suffering sucks, but we are not alone. Jesus is risen, and the end of all things is near. It won't be easy, but, but I'm praying it could be beautiful. And so whatever that means for you, do something in that direction. Start somewhere. Maybe you come to the Faith and Work event on Tuesday to just engage with some other people in similar situations. Maybe you join a gospel community. Hey, if you're in a gospel community, please go to it. Head out for coffee or lunch after the service. Invite someone from church over for a meal this week. Find out what it's like for them to follow Jesus in their sphere. You want a really specific one? Have you got a brother or sister who calls Hillsong their home church? Reach out to them this week. It's going to be a tough week for them, and the world's not going to give them much. But you can encourage them to look to Jesus. Whatever it looks like for you, start somewhere. Be a better kind of community together, won't we? To kick us off, before we head out, we're going to stand and have a few different opportunities to respond. So as the band comes up, would you please stand with me? So a few different things we get to do now together. There's a prayer team to my left, your right, who would just love to pray with you during these next songs or after the service about the week you've got in front of you. We're going to sing together. Let me encourage you to sing loud and encourage each other with the words of the songs to come. And before we do that, we're going to do something that Christians have always done in moments like this. We're going to say the Apostles' Creed together. We're going to declare out loud what it is we believe, that Jesus is Lord, that God is the judge, that Christ has risen and we will too. I've been saying the creed a long time and it seems to me like there's two ways to say it. There's either quietly, slightly unimpressed and a little bit bored. Or there's a better way, a louder way, a joyful way. And you get to choose. I'm not going to tell you what to do, but let's remember some of us have to go to work tomorrow and that's not going to be easy. Some of us go to classrooms where Jesus is just not welcome this week and they need all the reminders they can get that he is Lord and he is risen. Some of us are leaving from here to go to a family, a home that's really just frustrated. We've wasted Sunday morning like this. And I reckon we need that brother and we need that sister to know when they go, they do not go alone. Don't you? It's very much a team sport, this Apostles' Creed that we're about to say together. So as you say it, say it loud and listen carefully as we remind each other, this is what we believe And we believe this together. It's a city on a hill. What do you believe? 
I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, He rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. From there, He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.